Well, last week, each one of us had different Thanksgiving dinners uh, that we attended. And any time that a family sits around a table, it can be a beautiful thing. Or it can be a disaster. Now, I was thinking about having a show of hands for people to go ahead and lift their hands up on uh, who had a beautiful thing or a disaster, but some of you came with family. And so I don't want you to, you know, get angry with one another. So we won't do that. But I just want to begin by saying this. Family brings out the best in us, and it brings out the worst in us. And you know, often when I think of Jesus' life, I often kind of think that He went through life kind of doing it alone. Or maybe with Peter and James and John, His three kind of best friends, or the disciples. But this week as I was thinking about Jesus and His life, I realized that He grew up in a family and that there was a family that was central to who He became. And so this week, I just kind of looked through Jesus' life through the perspective of His family. And this is what kind of came to mind. We all know how the story begins. It begins with a carpenter named Joseph who meets a woman, a young teenage girl named Mary. And they somehow, the Bible doesn't say, but they met maybe in a diner in the Middle East or maybe at a carpentry you know, convention, trade show. We don't know, but they met and they fell in love. And they decided to build this relationship together. And the love grows and the excitement grows and finally they get engaged. Now, Pastor Isaac and Katie have gone through an engagement this whole year and uh, eventually got married a couple of months ago. And it's been real exciting to kind of see uh, how that uh, all went about. And it was a very exciting time, just like for them with Joseph and Mary in the first century. You see, the thing was, in the first century, there were parties and festivals around engagements and marriages. So all the time, as they're going through this engagement, it's a very exciting time. And you just kind of think that what's going to happen is this marriage is just going to, or this engagement is just going to keep going up and to the right. And there's this high point, but then they become engaged And it looked like everything is going great, and tragedy hits. At least Joseph thinks. Mary announces that she's pregnant. And Joseph knows that it is not from him. The Bible says this. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but while while she was still a virgin... She became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Now, folks, that's a devastating piece of information to receive, what Joseph received. I mean, it hits him very hard. And he has to think about, how am I going to respond to this? What am I going to do? I mean, this becoming pregnant by the Holy Spirit, you know, just didn't seem very likely to Joseph. And in verse 19, it says this, Joseph, Mary's fiancé, being a just man, decided to break the engagement quietly so as not to disgrace her 
publicly. And so the night before, though, something changes. The night before he goes public with his decision that he's breaking off the engagement, the Bible says this. As he considered this, he fell asleep and an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to go ahead with your marriage to Mary. For the child within her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Kind of a weird dream. But Joseph wakes up the next morning. And even though this goes against every natural instinct that he can think of, he goes ahead and he decides to continue on with the engagement. And they are headed towards marriage. And of course, you know what happens next. They eventually come to the exciting time in which Jesus is born. And they give birth in Bethlehem. And they are told that He is to be the Savior of the world. Now, as I was looking at Jesus' family this week, I was just thinking, this must have been one of the highest points of His family. Jesus' birth. I mean, for this family of three, it was a very high point. I mean, there are angelic choirs, guests from the east, this special star that came. It was a magical evening. It was a high point. And again, you think what's going to happen to this young family is things are just going to get better and better, and they're just going to be happier and happier. But that's not what happens. This happiness, you see, is very short-lived, because before long, what you find out is that they become refugees. It's a low point. It's a point in which they are taken away from everything that they know, their family, their friends, their community, and they're left to be refugees. You remember that part of the story? The Bible says this, After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, Get up and flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to try to kill her child, or kill the child. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. Herod was furious when he learned that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under because the wise men had told him the star first appeared to them about two years earlier. Now, each night on our televisions, what we often see is thousands and thousands of people throughout the world who become refugees. I read a news clip recently about a family in which the father, they were refugees, and they had lost everything, and they were just barely surviving. And finally he sold all of his clothes, and all the family's clothes, so that they could have one last meal together, because in that culture it was so important to have a meal. They had this meal naked, and they died a couple days later. And folks, this is the type of condition that Joseph and Mary are experiencing. You see, often what happens is we see the baby and the manger and the Jesus, and it gets all kind of real exciting. We think, oh, isn't that a cute little family? And they just had to take a little jaunt to Egypt, you know, to their retreat center. But it wasn't like that. It was a very difficult time. 
They were fleeing for their lives. They're living, aside, living alongside the road. And there are three of them. And it's a terrible situation. It's horrible. They're wondering each day, will they have enough food to feed themselves? And finally they get to Egypt, but then Joseph has to ask, now, am I going to be able to make it? And the reality is, we don't even know how he feeds his family. The Bible doesn't tell us. But these are horrible conditions. And so you have this high point of his birth, but then this low point of him being a refugee, and you keep going through the story, and something happens. Fate takes place. Herod, the king who was going to kill all the young boys, dies. And so they feel safe. And so Joseph and Mary and Jesus, they return back. But they don't go back to Bethlehem, but they go back to this little town called Nazareth. And from all indications, what we find is this becomes a happy time. It's a high point in Jesus' life. Now, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Jesus had brothers and sisters. The Bible tells us that he had four brothers. We're given the names of them, in fact. And more than likely, he had sisters. So this is a large, large family. But from what we can tell, his growing up years were... Very, very wonderful. And in his 20s, and he learned the trade of his dad being a carpenter. And it's like this high point once again. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus grew in knowledge during this time. It says this, Jesus became wiser and grew physically. People liked him and he pleased God. And so we're at this high point. And finally, when he's 30, it's this high point he becomes baptized. In the Jordan River. And while he's getting baptized, the Bible tells us this. And when Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens split open and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son and I am fully pleased with you. That is a great, great passage. God looks down upon Jesus and says, his identity is in me. He is my son. Now, you would think at this point, everything's going to go well. He's God's son. And it's this high point. But Jesus' family gets embarrassed of him. Because Jesus starts kind of talking a little bit weird and wacky compared to what the normal of society was. You see, he starts going around people and he says, yeah, I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Savior of the world. He starts healing people and casting out demons and doing things that many people had never seen before. He calls 12 men to give up everything to follow Him. And in the middle of all of this, in His family's embarrassment, they come up to Him and the Bible says this, When Jesus' family heard what He was doing, they thought He was crazy and went to get Him under Control. Can you imagine that conversation? The Savior of the world, and here comes the family rushing in. Dude, what's up? You know? Jesus, you can't go around saying these kind of things. We need to shut you up for your own good. This is whack. And yet, what does Jesus do? He ignores them. Because He is God. And he goes on teaching and healing and feeding multitudes of people. 
And He calms down a storm. He raises a person from the dead. Jesus' popularity hits this all-time high on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before the very first Easter. In fact, it was so high that the disciples are heading towards to Jerusalem and the whole city shows up to meet them. I mean, just think about that. Bunch leaves for somewhere. He comes back. Who shows up? Nobody. Jesus comes back to Jerusalem and the whole city shows up. This is a high point in Jesus' family. And people are claiming Him to be the King of the Jews. Look at what the Bible says. When Jesus came to Jerusalem, everyone in the city, everyone in the city was excited and asked, Who can this be? The crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. I mean, this is a parade that's going on. You know, we'll watch them pretty soon. Christmas, New Year's Day. This is a parade and they're walking down and people are waving palm branches and they're taking, uh, you know, blankets and they're putting it down on the ground and they're bowing down to Him and saying, You're the greatest, You're the highest, You're the best. And I can just imagine Jesus' brothers, you know, you're walking in this crowd and you're like, He's with me. Yeah, yeah, we know Him. We knew He was going to be great. Yeah, that little thing that we talked about, you know, a few verses ago. No, 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 no. We knew how famous he was going to become. But this high point doesn't last long. Within just a few days, we find that Jesus is arrested. He is beaten, tortured, eventually killed upon a cross. And the family of Jesus Christ, his earthly family, It's their lowest point. And I was just thinking about, just think about being Jesus' mom on that day. You're looking up at the cross and you are remembering back to when you went to Bethlehem and now your son is on a cross. And unless God shows up, he, he's dead. And can you imagine being a brother or sister of Jesus in that moment? And you're just looking up there. It must have been probably the lowest moment of Jesus' family. It's the highest moment for us. But it was the lowest moment for Him. But that day doesn't last very long. Because three days later, Jesus is resurrected. And you can just imagine what Jesus' family must do. I mean, He was just dead three days ago. And now He's alive and He's talking to Him and He's walking around. Scripture tells us over 500 people witnessed seeing Him. And can you imagine that perspective? Some of you have lost loved ones maybe recently or in the last year. And can you imagine that person coming back and the joy that you must have if, you, if that, that experience happened to you? And the family's going great, but just a few days later, the Scripture tells us that He ascends up into heaven 
And the family doesn't see him anymore. And so the resurrection for them was so exciting. They're like, wow. But also, he's gone. Okay, let's take a time out for a second. And uh, let me just kind of walk you through the fact that the reality that I just gave you of Jesus Christ is a reality in which every family could be charted like that. If we had enough time today, we could go through every single family that is here and you could tell us your high points and the low points that you experienced through your family. And I know that there are families here that are experiencing very low points right now. You're, you feel crushed. You've lost your job. The marriage is barely holding on. Kids are acting up. It's a difficult time. It's a low valley. You're wondering, can it get any worse for our family? And then there are others of you, you're at an all-time high. And your family's going great. Things are going wonderful. And you're thinking, could it get any better for our family? And then there are probably several of us that we're just kind of in the middle. You know, we're not at a high. We're not at a low. We're just kind of at a midpoint. Things are just kind of going through as planned. And I left some space in your uh, program because I'd really encourage you this week to go through and write out about the high points and low points in your family. In fact, that's what I did this week. I did a little bit of a family tree. My parents were married in 1957. And our family has had many high points and low points throughout that whole time. One of the low points was that my parents were not able to conceive children uh, for the first ten years of their life. And so they adopted uh, my brother and my sister who are older than me. And those were high points. And 13 years after they had been married, my mom went to the doctor and she said, something's wrong with me, I think I have a tumor. Here is the tumor. Now, my mom calls me an accident, my dad calls me, no, no, my dad calls me an accident, my mom calls me a miracle, and I figure I'm somewhere in between, okay? But it was a high point for him, 13 years. And there were some low points in there too. All of my grandparents died before the age of 12. And there were financial struggles that we went through. Um, We qualified for food stamps, and... uh, There were some difficult times. I remember a few years ago, uh, my dad called me on the phone and he said, Hey, Chris, I just want you to know that your brother was in a car accident. And uh, the other person that was in the accident died. And your brother right now is in critical care. And we don't know if he's going to make it. You know what was weird about that? No one else knew at the hospital. Our family knew. We walked into that hospital and we weren't crying. We were so happy. Because it had been seven years since my brother had spoken. To anybody in the family. 
And I'm sure they thought we were weird because, you know, here he is on life support and all this kind of stuff. And we're like, ah, Tim, we're so glad. You know, like, glad to see you, buddy. And God spared his life. But it took that for our family to kind of get together. And what seemed like such a low point to the rest of the world, for our family it was a high point. And we've had those kind of peaks and valleys over uh, our life. And all of you do too. And I was thinking about my own family. Another family. Chris and Chris Bunch and Jennifer Terry got married in 1994. And that was a real high peak. Two weeks later, we found out that Jennifer was not going to be able to live in Florida where I was pastoring, and she lived here in Muncie, and we lived separated for the first year of our marriage. And it was horrible. She went through a horrible depression. It was a very difficult, painful time. But the second year, she got transferred to Lafayette, and we were able to kind of do life together, and we served the church, and it was this high point. And she graduated from medical school, and I'll never forget being down at Indy and her walking across, and they said, Dr. Jennifer Bunch. And I was so excited. You know, I wanted to be like, that's my wife. Hello. That's mine, you know. High point. And then we moved to Muncie and I started my master's program. And that was tough. It was a valley. And then we started the jar and... uh, Things went great right at first, and it was going high, and then it kind of went low, and then we went public, and it went high. And what has been such a high is seeing all of your lives that have been transformed because of what God has done. And He's just used me. And a couple of years ago, Jordan was born, and that was a high point into our life. And a couple of years later, Shiloh was born. And we've had so many ups and downs and peaks and valleys. And I'll tell you what. Every single one of them has shaped who I am. My family has shaped who I am. And I just want to ask you this morning, how are you valuing family? And how important is your family to you? This past week I was uh, reading kind of an in-depth report of the last 15 minutes of uh, Flight 93. That was the flight at 9-11 that they took the plane over from the terrorist and it landed or crashed in Pittsburgh, right outside of Pittsburgh. And uh, the report that I was looking at had all these phone calls that were made from air phones and cell phones the last 15 minutes. You know what? There wasn't a single phone call made to an office. There wasn't a single phone call made to a lawyer or a financial advisor. Everyone called their family. President Bush, if you remember, was in Florida during that time. And I was looking at that part of it as well. And when the first tower hit, he picked up the phone and he called Laura, who was his first lady. And what was ironic was when he called her, she was already on the phone talking to her two daughters, their two daughters, Jenna and Barbara. 
And so here's this national catastrophe that's happening in the world. And the greatest, most powerful man in the world at that point, when he could call generals, the Air Force, whoever he needed, you know the first call he made? was to his wife and his girls, his family. And I was just thinking how awesome that was, and that I would hope that I would be exactly the same thing, to put first things first. But it got me to thinking this weekend that, you know what, we're not in a national calamity right now, and your family may not be going through a crisis, and I just wonder how we're treating each other when we're just kind of going through a normal week. On a typical afternoon, when mom and dad get home after work, and they're tired and they're worn out, and the kids get home from school, and they're wired and they're up, and all of a sudden you get into that house together, and how do we treat each other? How much are we there for each other? How willing are we to love and give security to that person? Now, I've used this before, but I think it's one of the best visuals that we can give. And it's where I want to spend the rest of our time. And it's, who is responsible in your family for filling up the tank of everyone else in your family? Whose responsibility? Whose job is it? I mean, when people in your family are down here at E, emotionally, spiritually, when they are on empty, when they're running on empty, whose job is it to fill their tank? Well, God has a great point of view on this throughout Scripture. And it's consistent. And this is what God says. Everybody in the family has the responsibility of filling up everyone else in the family. Every time there's somebody in your family who's at an E, it's the responsibility of everyone else to fill that person up. The Bible says that it's the husband's responsibility. In Ephesians 5, it says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. The highest standard of love that the universe has ever known is what Jesus Christ did when He showed love that was expressed by shedding His blood for His people and for the church. And so fathers and dads and husbands, it's your job. It's your job, it's your assignment, it's your call from heaven to fill the emotional tank of your wife, of your kids, of who's ever in your house. Every day, it's your job. Don't shirk your job. But then just a couple of verses later, it says, it's the wife's responsibility. The Bible says this, the wife should respect and honor her husband. Wives, it's your responsibility to fill up the emotional tank of your spouse, of your husband. You're to support him, to encourage him, affirm him, respect him, breathe life into him, encourage him. It's your job from heaven. Even if he doesn't do it for you, 
It's still your job to fill his tank, just like it is for husbands. Even if they're not doing it, you still do it. And then the Bible says it's parents or parents' responsibility. Let me just say this. Any of you that are single parents, you're my heroes. Because you guys do twice the amount of work that two-parent families do. And I know it's not easy. I know it's not difficult. You're not asking for a pity party, but I just want to recognize you. And yet the Bible says to both single parents and two-parent families these words. And now a word to your parents. To you parents. Don't keep on scolding and nagging your children, making them angry and resentful. Rather, bring them up with the loving discipline the Lord Himself approves, with suggestions and godly advice. Parents, don't provoke your children to anger. I was talking to a friend of mine this week. He's 38 years old, and his mom spent all Thanksgiving provoking him to anger. And I'm just thinking, how many of you have, not 38-year-olds, but maybe 2-year-olds, 3-year-olds, 4-year-olds, teenagers, whatever, and you provoke them to anger? High school is tough. Junior high is tough. School is tough. Kids come home, and sometimes kids are at E. They've been ripped on the whole day in ways that you haven't seen. So when they get home, it's your responsibility as a parent to fill them up. Now, this is the problem. When you get home, and you're at E, and they're at E, right? And all of a sudden, what comes out of your mouth are things like this. You don't do this. You don't do that. Do I have to do everything for you? When are you going to grow up and take responsibility? And pretty soon, all you do is you see this kid just going more and more to eat. And pretty soon, they stop trusting. They stop reacting because they're done. Their house is not a safe place. Your job as parents is to fill the tank of your kids even when you're on E. So that they know when they get home, I'll tell you what, if no one else fills up my life, I know that my mom, my dad, my grandma, my grandpa, they are going to fill up my tank. And then finally, the scripture also says that it's kids' responsibility. It's kids' responsibility. It says this, Honor your father and mother that everything may go well for you and you may have a long life on earth. This is an important commandment with a promise. And for those of you who are middle schoolers, high schoolers, if you want to live a long and prosperous life, I'll tell you the way that you do it. You honor your mom and dad. When you get home, you fill up their tank. That's what the Bible says. And so what God's whole point is, folks, it's everyone's responsibility to fill up the tank in the family of everyone else so that you can become a family of another kind. So the question becomes, how do we do this, so bunch? How do we do it? Well, I'm going to give to you real quick practically uh, three practical things. It's what I call the Family Blessing Exchange Program. You know, they have 
uh, foreign student exchanges, but you get to send them home, you can't do that with your family. Okay? So you just got to keep on doing the exchange program. And, I mean, when you get home and everyone else gets home and everyone's at E, how can you be a blessing for everyone else in your family? Jesus said this one day, it is more blessed to give than to receive. How do you become a blessing to your family? You give. You give. You don't expect to receive. You give. That's how you become a blessing. Let's look at the first one. The first thing you give is looks of love. Looks of love. Did you know that a single look of disdain or disrespect or shame can bury a kid into E or a spouse? I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen before. I've seen spouses in social settings in which the one will say something and all of a sudden the husband will give a look or the wife will give a look. And I mean, they just bury them in the ground. I've seen it with parents and kids. You're at a grocery and you're in line and all of a sudden a parent will just give a look that will just bury a kid. And I've seen kids do it to parents, not be respectful and it just... Kills them. It may seem very, very little. Why are we talking about looks at church for? You know why? Because they have a devastating effect when they're like that. But you can turn it around. A single look with love and joy and delight can lift a person's spirit up. A loving look takes someone who's down here on fumes and they're just barely making it. You give a loving look and all of a sudden it starts going up. Their emotional tank goes up. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Mikey, uh, who is our uh, coordinator of uh, media and communications, there were a lot of things on his plate that day. He uh, was playing in the band. He was getting all the things set up. We had a video that we had to run. He was helping me with props. And you could just tell he was just overwhelmed. And he walked back over to the table where we do the sound and the media and um, I was doing announcements that week, and I looked out, and his wife, Emily, just kind of looked at him and smiled and gave him a wink like that. And all of a sudden, you just saw him just kind of, just a wink. Some of you need to wink at each other, you know what I mean? Show a little love with a look. I can still remember a look that I received 20 years ago. I'll never forget it. It's as fresh on my mind as it was 20 years ago. I was playing football, freshman football, for Anderson Madison Heights. We stunk. We didn't win a game the whole year. Actually, we did win one game. It was by forfeit. The other team forfeited. And it was raining, and my grandmother was up in the stands at this one game against Huntington, which is a city up north. And it was pouring down rain. And my grandma was there. She had this poncho kind of on. And there was just this rain dripping kind of down and off of her. And uh, we were, like I said, we were just horrible. But this is coming off of her face. And we got killed. Didn't score a touchdown. I'm walking off the football field. 
And um, she looks down at me and she smiles and she had this one tooth that was half gold and it just kind of glistened. And she put up her thumb like this. No words exchanged. And you know what that said to me? I'm proud of you. I don't care what the score says on that board. You're my grandson. I love you. I'm so proud of you. It's a look that I'll never forget. You know, I was thinking about the Bible this uh, week as I was reading it. And I was thinking about looks. And I was thinking about the look that Jesus must have given to his mom when he's on the cross. And he looks down and the Bible says this. So Jesus, seen looking at his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, Dear woman, see, here is your son. Here is Jesus in excruciating pain, and as he looks down, he sees his mom, and he says, with a look, not with words, but with a look, it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. And eventually he uses words to say, this is your son. You can give a look that will fill somebody up, or you can give a look that will bury them. And this week you'll have a choice of what you're going to decide in your family. And I hope that you're going to fill them up with looks of love. Here's the second thing. Giving words of love. You give looks of love and then you give words of love. The Bible says this. Kind words are like honey, sweet to the soul and healthy for the body. Words are powerful. They're extremely powerful. There's a guy here in the church named Dennis. And almost every single Sunday since he's been coming to church, he'll come up to me and he will uh, just give encouraging words. He'll say things like, great teaching today. Man, you hit a home run. Wow, that really touched my life. One time he came up to me and he goes, Ooh, it was so good today, I don't think Joel Olstein had anything on you. Now, I think he must have been drinking a little bit, you know, but that's why we have Celebrate Recovery, you know. But every time he comes up, man, I get filled up. I never leave this place at least halfway full. Because every time he comes, I leave, even if I've bombed, struck out, I'm halfway full. Words are just powerful. Words destroy or words build up. And all of you know what the three most powerful words are, right? And it's not go, Colts, win, okay? The three most powerful words are I love you. I love you. I have a feeling that some of you grew up in families where you rarely heard that. My wife, Jennifer, grew up in a family in which she rarely heard those three words. And I'll tell you what, when we had kids, she said, we're going to be fanatics. I don't care if other parents think, oh my gosh. All they do is tell their kids they love them. Absolutely right. And we do it all the time. Because Jennifer grew up in a family it wasn't said. And let me tell you, you say those things as a family, and you mean them, It'll redefine your family. And dads, especially for you. Now I know, dads, some of you probably don't feel comfortable saying I love you. Well, you need to go take a walk 
and start practicing it around your block. Just start walking around saying, I love you. And just walk. In fact, take a walk today. Because there are people in your life who are desperately longing to hear from you as husbands, you as dads, I love you. And when you say those powerful words, they redefine your life. And the amount of words that you give like that, it doesn't have to be a look, it doesn't have to be a touch, just a word can change someone's life. Last thing, give touches of love. Give touches of love. Massive amount of love can be received with a single touch. Not a look, not a word, just a touch. And Jesus knew this. That's why when He healed people, almost every healing focus that we've ever seen, it happens in such a way that there is a touch associated with it. He touches a leper. He touches a blind man. He touches a child on the head. Touch was so important for His ministry. A couple weeks ago, I was uh, giving a teaching. It was right up here. And afterwards, people came up to greet me. And uh, one of the guys from my small group came up. I barely even looked at him. He just put his hand out. We kind of did the guy, kind of, you know, like not really a hug, but kind of like a, hey, I know you're there, you know. I didn't look at him. He didn't say a word to me. But man, I felt loved. It was just a small little touch, you know. Not enough for guys, you know, to get too touchy, but just enough that you just, bam. And it was just like he was saying, way to go, buddy, way to go. No words were said. We barely even spoke. And you know what? You can do this at home. You can give a loving touch, a warm embrace, just a handshake, a high five, whatever's comfortable in your family. But you do this over time, folks, and it fills them up. It fills them up. So I just want to ask you this morning, will you take God's call seriously to fill up your family during Christmas? Because there will be many stresses and pressures, but will you fill them up? Will you give looks of love and words of love and touches of love to your family? And I'm just telling you, you do this and it's a Christmas of another kind, guaranteed in your family in 2009. Listen to what God says. He says this about you. You are precious in my sight, and I love you. You're precious in my sight, and I love you. If God can say that about you, you need to be saying it about your family. We're going to close with uh, that old song that uh, now is called a new song, which is kind of weird. New Redemption song. Yeah, the new redemption song. And uh, you know that word redemption means exchange. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. He came from upstairs in heaven, downstairs to us, and He exchanged Himself for all of you and me. And let's sing that and celebrate it 
and look forward to a Christmas of another kind. Let's stand. Place you like prayer for anything, come up and uh, Derek would love to meet you guys. Thanks.